0: Please turn with me to the book of Acts, or in Acts chapter 7. We are going through Acts 7, 17 to 43, but we'll start off by reading verses 17 to 22. Acts chapter... Acts chapter 7, beginning of verse 17. This is Stephen continuing in his address. But at the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham... The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we seek to make much of Christ this morning. Lord, and I do pray that this word may do just that and accomplish that mission. And I do pray, Lord, by the power and the assistance of your eternal Spirit, that you might help us to consider your word, and that you may take this word and plant it deep into the soil of our hearts, and cause it to bear fruits to your eternal glory. And Lord, for our good, so that we might grow in Christ's likeness, for our own joy, and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen continues in his speech. Stephen, having disputed with the crowds and they could not withstand his wisdom, finally they decide to silence Stephen and they seize him and they bring him before the religious council, bring up false charges. then he begins to answer to these charges, and we've made our way through the beginning of his sermon, and now to verse 17, and through along the way, he started with Abraham, started with with the promise made to Abraham that through him, through his seed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed, and throughout that time, or throughout that journey, or throughout that progress, there's these threats to the promise, and Stephen's Address takes us from Abraham down to Joseph, and then now we come to the story of Moses. So, I was preparing this sermon. There's a particular song that kept playing on repeat on my mind, and the song that I think many of you are familiar with is by Andrew Peterson. I believe it's titled Deliver Us, but the words in that song say this with the story of Moses in the Exodus serving as a backdrop. To the song, our enemy, our captor, is no pharaoh on the Nile. Our toil is neither mud nor brick nor sand. Our ankles bear no calluses from chains, yet, Lord, we're bound. Imprisoned here, we dwell in our own land. Our sins, they are more numerous than all the lambs we slay. Our shackles, they are made with our own hands. Our toil is our atonement and our freedom yours to give. The song, I think, uses the backdrop of Exodus and slavery of the people of God in Egypt as a kind of window into something spiritual that is going on, as the song suggests. And that is that there is a captivity to sin that is much more grievous than the captivity that the people of God endured and experienced as slaves in Egypt. As Stephen continues in his sermon, there are connections now he draws from the story of Moses, just as he's been doing all along, but now these are connections that he's beginning to start to, start to make for his audience, and so we're here to sort of dissect what are these parallels, what are these connections After Jesus being the most significant person in all of biblical history and all this history of the world and history of salvation, Moses would follow pretty closely after Jesus as being one of the most significant persons in salvation history. And so we're going to consider his story through the words of Stephen and draw some parallels, sort of going from Moses to Jesus. Moses, Jesus, have you ever seen? like videos of people watching like a ping-pong match or a tennis match. How do they go? They go like this, going back and forth. Right, that's sort of kind of what we're doing here, going back and forth from Moses to Jesus, Moses to Jesus. Essentially pointing to the fact that Jesus provides a much greater deliverance than Moses was able to provide. Well, Moses being an instrument that the, Moses himself provided the deliverance. But how it served to point to a greater deliverance that was coming. So first, a divine response to human suffering. So as Stephen says, the time of the promise drew near, that God had granted to Abraham. And at this point in the story, the people of God increased and multiplied in number as they were still living as foreigners in the land of Egypt. A pharaoh rose up that did not, understand, did not know or didn't care to know the Hebrews. And the people, afraid that they would become much more numerous, decided to enslave them, send taskmasters over the Israelites. And it still continued to grow until finally Pharaoh decided to send down an edict. Right? Kill every male. Among the Hebrews, expose them, which meant throw them in the Nile, throw them into the wilderness, and let them be devoured, because we don't want these people to outnumber us. And so we see immediately, as Stephen says, that there's a, another threat to the original promise. And it comes from the top down, from Pharaoh and all all of this produces great groaning and great lamentation every hand to the plow every sweat on the brow every crying father and mother who lost their child all comes together raises a great lamentation and groan that reaches the ears of God and he intends to respond and even in this suffering, there's another parallel. there's a parallel to this suffering that we see in the New Testament. In Matthew 2:16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, the wise men who came from foreign lands to see the promised seed being born into the world, the savior of the world, Herod became furious. And so he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. So we see a similar kind of edict and a similar form of suffering that's intended to point to a greater deliverance. And in both stories, there is a divine preservation that we're about to see. And Jesus himself in the Gospels draws these same connections and these same parallels. He himself sees that he is intended to be a greater Moses. In John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000 plus people who had been following Jesus at that point into the wilderness and had been hungering, Jesus fed them all miraculously and taking his leave, they continued to follow Jesus. And there, in this conversation between Jesus and the crowds, he gets to the heart of the matter. He tells them what their truest desire is and at that point they're understanding that this jesus is kind of like moses he says in john 6 32 to the crowds jesus said to them truly truly i say to you it was not moses who gave you the bread from heaven as you wandered in the wilderness after the exodus but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of god is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world in response they said to him sir Give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying, you come seeking bread to fill your bellies with physical satisfaction, but I am offering you a bread that will satisfy your spiritual appetite. Your stomachs are empty, and your truest appetite is for salvation. That is what your most substantial need. Your very lives are crying out for salvation. And you don't even know it. It's like the blood of Abel that was spilled on the ground on the hands of his brother, that cried out to the Lord, so your very souls are crying out for deliverance. And I'm here to bring that deliverance to you. What you need most is not more money. What you need most is not health. What you need most is not friends or the love of family members what you need most is not material possessions what you need most is salvation and that's what I've come here for verse 23 when Moses was 40 years old they came into his heart to visit his brothers the children of Israel and seeing one of them being wronged he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the egyptian Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. God's answer to the cry of his people is to bring or to call one to be a deliverer, and that was Moses. It says that Moses was beautiful in God's sight, words that are also said in the book of Hebrews 11.23. And Hebrews, by the way, also makes these very clear connections between Moses and Jesus. Moses was divinely preserved. He was saved. Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, so not immediately exposed like they were supposed to expose their son, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict." He was saved, he was preserved, he was kept because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I don't think that the author is intending to say that if Moses was ugly, he would have been exposed. I don't think that's the point of the passage. But I think what we see here, I think what the authors are getting at is that there is a divine preservation, there's a divine election. For reasons we do not know, Moses was spared and the others were not. The Lord had chosen him from the very beginning to function as his instrument to bring deliverance to his people. And it would seem that Moses understood his purpose, contrary to what you may have seen in movies or animated renditions of the story of Moses and the Exodus, to where at some point he becomes surprised that, wow, I'm a Hebrew, I didn't know that. It seems that Moses actually knew all along. He understood at least that part of his purpose was to bring some kind of deliverance to his people. Hey, I am a Hebrew, and I'm here in Egypt. I'm here raised as, under Pharaoh's daughter, or as, 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 the, as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. And my people are enslaved. He understood to some degree that he's going to have some kind of significant role to play. And It says that It came into his heart to visit his brothers. And even there, there was a kind of divine intent. It's not that he woke up one day when he was 40 years old, "Ah, I think I'm going to go and see my brothers. What's going on with them? No, at a particular time, it was put into his heart to go and visit with his brothers. It's intentional wording here. There's a divinely inspired visitation. That is like the visitation of Christ Jesus when Zechariah was mute until his son John would be born. And only then was he born, then was he able to finally be able to speak again, and he prophesied, and saying that the Lord has visited his people. In Luke 7:16, when Jesus raised the widow's son back to life, the people responded and said, God has visited his people. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. It says, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? The word care there is the same word that means visit in the Greek and Hebrew. So what is man that you visit him? Joseph's last words, we talked about Joseph because that's what Stephen talked about Right before Moses, Joseph, in his last words to his brothers before he died, he said to them that God would visit you and deliver you. When God intends to visit, it's not just a casual visit in the Scripture. When you see that God intends to visit, He intends to do something. Something more than just a visit. In Leo Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich, Ivan is a selfish and he's a materialistic kind of man. So much so that he creates this distance between his friends and his loved ones. He gets injured. He comes to the point where he is close to dying. And this is, people don't receive it well. They don't really think that he's going to die. In fact, they think, Life isn't so good, isn't that good, to take this man out of our lives. It's sort of the idea. They go and visit with him, not because they care for him, but because they think it's, sort of, it's, it's the appropriate thing to do. His own family members think it's convenient that he's on his deathbed because it changes their schedules. It's not entirely their fault. It's because of Ivan and the way that he has lived and the way that he has created walls between himself and others. And the people that you would expect to visit with him and care for him and love him are the people who do not. And the one who actually cares and visits with him and loves him is the one that you expect least, and that is the servant. The servant Garrison comes and he visits with Ivan and he cares for him and he loves him well and he notices this. John Wesley says, Without love, nothing can so profit us as to make our lives happy. By happiness, I mean not a slight trifling pleasure that perhaps begins and ends in the same hour, but such a state of well-being as contents the soul and gives it a steady, lasting satisfaction. Christ's visitation is like the visitation of Garrison. When we were once, like Ivan, our hearts were inhospitable and hostile and would not want Christ Jesus to visit with us, but why Christ visits with us anyway, comes into the world and loves us in ways that no one ever could by dying on the cross for our sins. And in that way, contents our souls in giving us a lasting satisfaction that is not determined by stuff or the things in the world, but grounded solely in the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Stephen continues in verse 35 in Acts 7. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, having received living oracles, to give to us. The parallels now become much more vivid. This Moses was rejected by the people of God, just as Christ Jesus would go on to be rejected by those he came to save, rejected by even the world so far as to go and crucify their Savior. This man sent by God to be both ruler and redeemer of his people, it's intended to point to this man who is Christ Jesus, the Son of Man, to be both ruler and redeemer of his people by dying for their sins. This man who led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt through the Exodus, is intended to point to this man who is Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who, came, who has come to provide a greater exodus The physical enslavement of the Hebrews is a symbolic representation of a spiritual reality, which is that all men are slaves to sin with a pharaoh and ruler of this world functioning as their taskmaster. This Moses prophesied that one would come after me that would be like me. And Jesus is that promised prophet. Prophet. Which, by the way, the Jews are still waiting for that prophet to come. And we say, that prophet has already come. and He is the Christ. The one that Peter makes clear in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. This is your prophet that you've been waiting for. This is the one who received oracles from God. Being Moses... And Jesus, and what is Jesus but the very Word of God, come down from heaven to speak truth, to speak the very words of God. God recognizes the need for deliverance, and His chosen method of deliverance is His sending one man to be a deliverer. However, as Stephen continues, he's also at the same time progressively making his point clear, which takes us Deliverance rejected. That though this is the one sent as deliverer, the people reject this deliverer. There's a first rejection in verses 26 to 29 when he goes and visits with his brothers and helps them, he ends up killing an Egyptian. The next day he sees brothers quarreling with one another and he seems to rec- intends to reconcile them, and then one of them thrusts him aside. And It says in the passage, Stephen, insightful, understanding his Bible, saying, they didn't understand that this is intended to be their deliverer. And so at that response, and if you read the Exodus account, Pharaoh at that point is looking to kill Moses for slaying an Egyptian. He ascribes to the sojourner way; He exiles himself. He leaves. And in that way, he identifies himself with the people of God. Again, Hebrews 11, making these connections for us. It says in Hebrews 11:24, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The author makes this point that Moses made a trade. He gave up being raised as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He gave up the pleasures of wealth and the status that he had and chose instead to receive as his wealth the reproaches of Christ. He chose rather to identify with Christ, though at that time he did not understand Christ or comprehend that Christ was coming to be a deliverer, but he made a choice. He made a choice to leave one thing behind and chose something else. And that something else was greater than the thing that he left behind. But then there's a second rejection, a progressive second rejection. In verse 39, says, our fathers, this is Stephen speaking, and he's making these connections. He's not only drawing parallels here between the promise and Moses and Jesus, but he's also making connections between his audience, the religious authorities, and how they are like their forefathers who rejected Moses. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us as for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they rejoiced then in the works of their hands. So their rejection becomes increasingly worse. They refused to obey Moses. We're no longer submitted to him. We're no longer going to follow him. They thrust him aside, it continues. And then it says their hearts turned to Egypt. They longed for Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. While they were physically out of Egypt, it would seem that their hearts actually never really left. And then it um comes to the ultimate conclusion. It began with rejection of Moses, to then the rejection of God. They go to the priests, we'll give you gold, you fashion an idol, and we will say, This is the God who delivered us. We will worship this God. And then verses 42 to 43 give us the result that God will ultimately hand them over to not only the sin that they desire, but also to what their sins deserve. They will be sojourners. They will be exiles. Full-blown idolatry in later years was a fruition of settled idolatry in the wilderness. This is God's pattern, and it has not changed. When someone rejects Christ's loving visitation, in the present time, God hands them over to their sin. Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. A rejection of Christ's garrison-like visitation results in a handing over the sin that one deserves and the sin that one craves. It's a decision to remain Ivan-like. It's a thrusting aside of Christ. And so considering these things, let's consider what does this mean? What do we do with this? Stephen is making these connections. Yes, Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus provides the greater deliverance. If you have received that deliverance, if you have received Christ Jesus as your Savior, then you have been delivered. You have experienced the greater exodus. You have been saved from the shackles of your sins and the harsh taskmaster of this world. And praise be to God for that. Is there anything more to be done? Is there anything more to consider? There is. Third and lastly, let us learn from ancient examples. 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul gives us a pattern to be aware of, drawing the same connections here that Stephen makes with his audience and those who rejected their deliverer. 1 Corinthians 10.6 Now these things took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The Apostle Paul makes the case that these are examples. This is a type, this is a pattern that we need to be aware of. These are ruinous events that serve as a warning to us today. Now I certainly, I certainly believe that those who are in Christ Jesus are saved eternally. I love the words of the hymn that he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so he will hold me fast. And I love John chapter 6 because there in John chapter 6, Jesus says that all who have been given into his hand, none can snatch away. If you are in Christ, none can snatch you away from the hand of Christ. That is where your assurance comes from. That is why on the day of death you can have any comfort and any peace and any joy because you know your eternal destiny. Christ is keeping you. And at the same time, there is an exhortation for us in the scriptures that if you are in the hand of Christ, you need to keep yourself in the hand of Christ. Like the Apostle Paul imprisoned there on the ship with other soldiers, with other imprisoned other prisoners, with the mariners, tossed to and fro by a great storm, all in fear of their lives, and receives a word from God to tell the others who are intending to escape. You need to tell all of these men that they need to stay on the ship, otherwise, nobody's going to be saved. So, in the same way, you need to keep yourself in the ship of Christ. And so it would be wise of us to consider the example that had been written for us in 1 Corinthians 10. How do we keep ourselves in the ship that Christ is keeping secure for us? First, we should not desire evil. Desire speaks to craving, ravenous appetites. In Numbers 11.34, graves, there were graves, of people who died because of these ravenous appetites. The place was called kibroth Hatava, which means Graves of Desire. And it's not like they were desiring bad things. They desired peace. They desired security. The people of God went into the Promised Land. They scoped it out. They reported back. But they wanted nothing to do with the Promised Land because they thought the people were too numerous and too strong. And they wanted to be kept safe and secure. Good desires. But what was the problem? The problem is that they let their desires lead them away from trusting in God. And that is considered a form of evil. It's like a child on a a leash. I don't know if you've ever seen those kids on a harness and they have like a a leash to it. It's kind of strange. I don't know. I'm not judging anybody who does it. I can understand the application of it. Like a child wants to go wherever it wants and you just sort of like pull them back. It's kind of like that. Or like a kite with string, but no one's holding on to it. It's not anchored to anything. It's like uncontrolled desire. It's left for the wind to take wherever it wants. So in the same way, we need to keep our desires in check. Because desires unchecked can lead us away from trusting in Christ Secondly, do not be idolaters, the passage says. If you want to stay on the ship, do not make an idol of anything. New Testament professor G.K. Beale says the, in his book, You Become What You Worship, he says the essence of idolatry is the breach of the creator creature distinction. That's what the Israelites do. Exodus 32, 4. Aaron receives the gold from their hands and he fashions it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Idolatry is the act of deifying ourselves or making gods of ourselves or making gods in our own image. And we can deify anything. We can deify our own actions, our own wills, our own desires, our own preferences, our own convictions. Our own wants, any material object, even any person, we can to some degree deify, making it a most dangerous sin to be aware of because it is so easy to commit. So we must beware of our own hearts because we're prone to worship. And there might be someone here who says, well, Demi, I don't worship any God. I don't worship your God. I don't worship this person's God. I don't worship God of the Muslims. I don't worship the God of science. I don't worship any God. But you're still worshiping. No, you have a God. You do. What is your highest good? What is your greatest desire? What is your greatest vision? As you envision your life and what you desire, what you aspire to, that most likely is your God. And you need to ask yourself, can that God save me from what my sins deserve? The answer is it can't. So you need to run to Christ. Run to Christ immediately. Not walk to Christ. Run to Christ today. We need to ask ourselves, what biblical commands... Am I aware of that I'm not following? If there, are not, if there are some, if there's any that you're not following, then most likely you're making an idol of something, ask yourself, are you looking to feel good above all, or are you looking to do the will of God? Those two things oftentimes are very separate. Thirdly, do not indulge in sexual immorality. This goes in line desire, but this desire is pointed in a particular direction. In Numbers 25, the people of God received the judgment of God because they went after foreigners. They took the wives of foreign nations and took them to themselves, which is something that God forbid because they were required to be a holy and distinct people, not mixing with the rest of the world. And so they were judged, and then you, in, that, in that particular event, you have one man, an Israelite, in the middle of all this mess, as people are lamenting and grieving, taking a foreigner into his own tent to be with. And his life was quickly snuffed out. This is a sin on two fronts. It's a concern for holiness. A concern to be set apart, distinct from the world, called to be the people of God. And it's also a sin on a second front, engaging in unlawful intercourse. This is uncontrolled desire of a sexual nature. This is not just about prostituting one's body to another, but Jesus makes quite clear in the Sermon at the Mount, this is about prostituting one's heart to another as well. And the Apostle Paul in Corinthians gives a force to this caution and he says, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Don't engage in such actions when you have the Holy Spirit abiding in you. Fourthly, if you want to stay on the ship, do not put Christ to the test. What is this sin? This is like... A child testing boundaries. The moment that you start setting boundaries in the child's life instinctively and naturally, what do they want to do? They want to test those boundaries. They want to see if you're serious. They want to see if there are actually consequences that are coming. They want to see how closely can they get to the line and can they even cross the line and not receive any kind of consequence. And here in this warning, it's also anchored to another example in the book of Numbers. The people were given food. They were wandering in the wilderness. they were hungry. So God provided miraculous food. He fed them, and yet they desired more than what was given. In Psalm 78, it actually clarifies things. Psalm 78:17, speaking of that event from which we get this particular exhortation, Psalm 78:17. Yet they sinned still more against them, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their hearts by demanding food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread and provide meat for his people? So is it discontentment with what God has already provided? Is desiring more than what is sufficient? This is like being left to drown in the ocean and God sending you a boat for your rescue and you being discontent and ungrateful because what you wanted is not a boat, but a cruise liner. And I think there's also a parallel to this in John chapter 6. The people are following Jesus because God because Jesus fed their bellies. And they wanted more. And they saw that there were some connections here between this man who is Jesus and Moses. And Jesus is saying, I am the greater Moses. And so they asked for signs. Give us a sign. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. Putting Jesus to the test. Even though Jesus has already proved himself by miraculous feeding them before. They wanted more than what they received. So the caution for us is, let us not demand a banquet when a small meal will suffice. Let us not demand more than what God has already given. We're in no place to demand. And then lastly, this is an interesting one, interesting because the other ones we could see, okay, not engage in sexual immorality, right, do not crave. But this is quite interesting. This one is, do not grumble. Don't complain. This is what I would call the grass is always greener kind of sin. These are fine. Things are well. But then you start taking a peek over, over there. Let's see what's over there. Wow, the grass is greener. Wow, the trees are taller. It provides a little bit more fruit things look really pleasant over there. Wow, that looks really nice. Ah, uh, but I'm going to stay over here. You, know, you take a step back, but you take another step forward again, and you're like, you keep looking, you keep looking, you keep going back, keep looking, until ultimately you become discontent, and all you can think about is what's lacking here, and what's over there, and all you're left with is a discontentment, and a grumbling. The problem is not your situation. The problem is not your life. The problem is not your job. The problem is not your money. The problem is not your spouse. The problem is not your children. The problem is your heart. You know you're guilty of the sin when, all you're, when, when you're pointing to what's lacking and yet you're not wanting to really do anything about it. But the response is, well, let me just go over there because I'm discontent and that seems better. And so the caution is, if you want to stay on the boat, do not grumble. The Greek word there for grumble is actually a word that's used in ancient times for dubs cooing. So whenever you are guilty of complaining, just think, okay, I'm cooing right now. You hear some people complaining, like, are you guys cooing right now? We would consider it wise, right, to regularly visit with a doctor. For physical checkups to make sure that everything is good, everything is healthy, everything is well. To catch anything, to let them know that if there's anything that's wrong, so that something some preventative measures might take place. But then, when you know, when you fail to have checkups, there's some people, there's some situations that could have been prevented if a person had done their regular checkups. Something could have been seen beforehand and it could have been addressed, and now it's become incredibly disastrous. So also, would we not consider it wise to regularly check up with the doctor of the Holy Spirit who uses the prescription of the Word to help us to understand ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see what's good, what's well, what's functional. Are we bearing fruit? What's an area of concern? What needs to be changed immediately? Before we purchase a house, We considered it wise to hire an inspector to look at it thoroughly, inside, outside, look at the structure, look at the framing, look at the walls, look at the outlets, look at the electricity, look at everything, and then provide a report. This looks good. This looks great. This is well-maintained. This could use some upkeep. This needs some maintenance. You need to keep an eye on this because this could be a concern in the near future. This, on the other hand, this is a red flag. You need to take care of this right away. It is good for us if we want to continue to remain in the ship of Christ's hand to do these regular inspection of ourselves, to inspect ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see what's good, what fruit are we bearing, what needs to change, what's an area of concern, what sins need to be repented of. Let us not ever think of ourselves that, this could never happen to us, that we could never fall away from the living God. That's your first mistake. Humility is accepting that none of us is beyond this. It could happen to us. We could be led away by our controlled desires. And so we need to regularly check in with ourselves, examine ourselves with the guide of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures to make sure that while we certainly trust in the salvation that has been purchased for us through Christ Jesus, that we are also doing what we can to remain in the palm of his hand.